If you have a copy of Scripture, we're in the book of Haggai, chapter 2. Look at verses 10 through 19 this morning. Book of Haggai, chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 10 through 19. As usual, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Haggai, chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches it, or touches with his fold bread, or stew, or wine, or oil, or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands, And what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord. How did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew. And with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that indeed you are in control of all things. We praise you for your sovereignty. We praise you that even as we have sung in the midst of the storm, you are Lord of all. Not Lord of some, but Lord of all. And Lord, we praise you because of that very fact that you are Lord of all. That indeed, your blessing overcomes our defilement. Thank you. I pray that as we look into your word, that it would penetrate our hearts and lives this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever given much thought to what you want in life, or maybe um, if you've given much thought to God's blessing in life. The story is told of King Midas. He was granted a wish that everyone would want to ask for. His wish was everything he touched would turn into gold. Which goes to show us that we can have the wrong wants in this world. Because Midas would quickly discover that you can't eat gold. And it's impossible to relate to gold people. You see, Midas clearly made the wrong choice. But what about God's blessing? Is that something that you desire in your life? Because when we have God's blessing, we have everything that we need. You can be rich or poor, healthy or sick. You could be living in a mansion or hiding out in a cave. But if you know the blessing of God, then you have everything you need. And it can never be taken away. We find satisfaction in God's blessing. However, if we lack God's blessing, we will never find satisfaction. Think about it. We sing of God's blessing. Usually 
we do so around Thanksgiving time when we sing this song, Count Your Blessings. The refrain of that song goes, Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. Charles Spurgeon told of an evening when he was riding home after a heavy day's work. Yes, preachers do work. But he was riding home after a heavy day's work. He felt weary and depressed. When as suddenly as a lightning flash, he thought of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. My grace is sufficient for thee. He said, I should think it is, Lord. And he burst out laughing. He said that it seemed to make unbelief so absurd. It was though some little fish, being very thirsty, was troubled about drinking the river dry. And the river said, drink away, little fish, my stream is sufficient for thee. Or it seemed after the seven years of plenty, a mouse feared that it would die of famine. And Joseph might say, cheer up, little mouse, my granaries are sufficient for thee. Or a man away up on a mountain saying to himself, I fear I shall exhaust all the oxygen in the atmosphere. But the earth might say, breathe away, O man, and fill your lungs ever. My atmosphere is sufficient for thee. Little faith will bring our souls to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to us. This is the prophet Haggai's third message to those who had returned from the Babylonian captivity. And he tells them and us how it is that we can experience God's true blessing. The people to whom Haggai is speaking are believers. They had left their familiar circumstances in Persia and they had returned to the promised land. They were committed to the Lord because one of the first things that they did when they got back was to rebuild the altar and to begin to rebuild the temple. However, they were faced with strong opposition from the Samaritans and other peoples of the land. The project quickly came to a stall. However, that did not stop them from doing the work on their own houses and the temple got put aside. Around 15 years later, God raised up Haggai with this message. It is, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? And as we notice, the people responded by starting to work on the temple again. In the book of Haggai, the first and third messages are very similar. And so are the second and fourth. The first and third are messages of rebuke the second and fourth are messages of encouragement the first message said seek god's kingdom first instead of putting yourself first the third message not only speaks about seeking god's kingdom first but it is has a lot to say about holiness and what is revealed to us is this providential blessing overcomes defilement so why did this message come about three months after the first message? There are a few explanations. One is that the early rains began in Jerusalem and mid-October, which softens the ground and allows for the seeds to be planted. And by mid-December, this work would be done. However, there'd be no evidence on whether it would be a good year or a bad year for the crops. Verse 19 gives the implication that the seed was not in the barn or even though it had been planted, neither the seed or the fruit trees had given any evidence as to a harvest. Will they face another year of drought? Will they have another year of sowing much but harvesting little? And God provides the assurance that they will experience providential blessing even though they are defiled people and what the lord makes clear is that he doesn't desire fancy buildings 
and animal sacrifices if the hearts of his worshipers are not righteous before him. No doubt there are those among those working that felt like they, if they could only get the temple reconstructed, it would, it would kind of act as a good luck charm. Since they rebuilt God's temple, surely then God will bless them because they rebuilt the temple. And surely then God would give them a bountiful harvest. However, their hearts were not right before God. They refused to draw near to God with clean hands and a pure heart. And so Haggai delivers a message to urge the people not only to keep working on the temple, but also do it from the hearts that are right before God. And we must understand that outward religion is never enough because God always looks at the heart of his people. And what I'm going to do as we look at this passage of scripture is I'm going to start at the end and then work to where we started reading. I want us to see how how this providential blessing overcomes defilement. So first, let's see providential blessing. Putting God's house first. I know I already spent a great deal of time on that in the first sermon as we talked about putting God's house first. And that theme doesn't change. If you genuinely want to experience God's blessing, then we must put God's house first. Haggai reveals to us both a negative and a positive of what happens when we put God's house first and what happens when we fail to put God's house first? So let's see this. First, practical discipline is brought for failure to put God's house first. Practical discipline is brought for failure to put God's house first. No one ever really wants to think about discipline. I don't know of a whole lot of people that are like, I just can't wait to get some discipline in my life. But the truth is... God will bring discipline for our failure to be obedient. In verse 15, verses 15 through 19, there's a reference to time and there's some confusion over what it means. Some say, well, it could mean that they, that they need to think back over the years of drought and frustration and see that's when their problems began because they put God's house on the back burner and took care of their own house first. Others say that, it, well, it could have a nuance to it, stating that from this point on, they needed to start thinking about the past and how their problems coincided with the neglect of God's house. The main thrust of the verse is clear. There is a direct correlation between their selfish priorities and the difficult circumstances that they had faced over the last few years. They are correlated. And perhaps the reason they were still faced with frustrating circumstances was that God had not removed the consequences of the past neglect. God's discipline, even though it is hard, and it may be hard for us to imagine, God's discipline is a blessing. And the reason for this is because as Hebrews chapter 12 verse, verses 1 through 11 explain to us, it tells us that, that God's discipline is evidence of God's love towards his children. So those who do not have God's discipline are not his children. There are times that this discipline comes directly from sin in our lives. We have sin in our lives and God disciplines it, us. It is like when you receive a a spanking from a parent or or we have sinned and and our heavenly father administers the discipline because of our sin and this discipline is always practical it always has a purpose but there are also times where where uh, he gives discipline and it's not related to any specific sin but it comes into our life to bring about spiritual maturity it's like as a parent, um, when you give your child something hard to do, that's a form of discipline. It's not pleasant for the child to do it because it's hard. But when the child submits, they've learned a valuable lesson that they will need throughout their life. And I don't know if you've 
noticed it or not, but we seem not to learn to trust God and to submit to God when everything in our life is going smoothly. As much as we do when things are hard because the trial forces us to rely on Him because we have nowhere else to go. And so for the Jews in this case, they had all these frustrations and they had all of these hardships that they were going through. And it was due to their neglect of God's house. They, they slipped into wrong priorities. They have put their own pleasure and their own comfort ahead of God's kingdom. And for this reason, God brings practical discipline because they failed to put God's house first. And he tries to get them to consider their ways to recognize that their priorities are wrong. But we also see that providential blessing is brought when we put God's house first. Providential blessing is brought when we put God's house first. So, so three months earlier, the people had taken the steps of obedience, but they were baby steps, apparently, because as of yet, they did not see any results. However, look what God does by his grace. In verse 19, he says, from this day on, I will bless you. When reading verse 18, we're faced with some difficult difficulties, such as why does Haggai seemingly say that God will bless them? Or reading verse 19, that God will bless them from this day on, which was December 18th. Especially when they had started to rebuild the temple months ago. I believe the best answer for that is, is that from this day on, they were to start thinking about how things had been for the past 16 to 18 years. They needed to write it down and recognize that God's true blessing began at this very time relating to the foundation of the temple. The Hebrew word does not necessarily refer to the foundation being laid, but to the start of the work on the temple. So one could argue that the work of rebuilding the temple began 16 to 18 years before, and now it's beginning again. And Haggai is making the point that God will truly bless them because of their obedience to put God's house first. And so I want us to notice two things. One, the priority of God's blessing. The priority of God's blessing. If God does not bless our work, then our work is in vain. It's laid out like this. We go to our store of grain and we think that we're going to find all these bushels of grain, like 20, and we get 10. We expect to draw out 50 gallons of wine, but we only end up with 20. We, ex we plant expecting to get some sort of crop, but a blasting wind and mildew and hail has decimated our yield. It's a farmer's worst nightmare. You see, way back in Leviticus, God had spelled out for Israel the blessing that he would bring to them if only they obeyed him. But also the curses that would be heaped upon them if they failed to obey. If they obeyed God's promises, then five Israelites would take down 100 enemies. And 100 Israelites would take down 10,000. And that's far too much for the human mind even to fathom. The only explanation is that God would, by his blessing, accomplish it. And that's often how God works, isn't it? That he blesses so that we have no choice but to say, this is from God. That's how his blessing works. Oh my, this, this blows our human mind away. This is from God alone. And God blesses in a way that defies human calculations. It's out of proportion with human ability or effort. That's how God blesses. We see this very thing in the New Testament, don't we? We see Jesus feeding 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread and some fish. In fact, Jesus tests his disciples by asking them where they would get the bread to feed this massive crowd. And what did the disciples do? 
Well, they did what any reasonable person would do. They started making calculations. They were obviously math people. And they maybe they were engineers, I don't know. But they figured that it was going to take at least 200 denarii to give everyone just a little something. Just to give them just a little itty bitty bit. It's going to take 200 denarii. And that's a hypothetical estimation, of course, because no one had 200 denarii. They, they weren't like, oh, I got, I got 200 days wages sitting around. That's what 200 denarii. 200 days wages to feed these people. What is the point of that miracle? What did Jesus do? He blesses the five loaves of bread and he blesses the two fish and it was sufficient for everyone to eat and to have 12 baskets left over. He blesses it. Now stop and think about this with me. And hear me out, I have no problem with using different methods for growing God's church. Things like taking care of your church building. However, when we sit down and we try to scheme up some way that we're going to grow God's church using the latest slick methods or how we are going to raise money for God's work by hiring some sort of professional fundraising group who is going to give us some guaranteed results, we are operating outside of the sphere of God's blessing. I can't tell you how many times I get an ad or a postcard or some sort of mailing or whatever it might be touting guaranteed methods to build your church. Guaranteed methods to boost your attendance. You want to grow your church overnight? Here's a guaranteed method. And that, it may work. It really may. But it works apart from God's blessing. You see, there's plenty of churches that are bursting at the seams, not because of God's blessing, but because they preach a man-centered gospel instead of a Christ-centered gospel. And I'm not interested in those approaches. I'm not interested in preaching a man-centered gospel. Do not confuse what we deem as earthly blessing with heavenly blessing. We are to obey God and his word and depend on him in prayer and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, the results will be on human explanation because that's the point of his blessing that we sit back and go, I don't know. I don't know how this happened. Isn't it weird that... that Churches start growing and people go, well, well, how'd that church grow? And then they have some sort of formula. We did this and this and this and here's the manual. I'll sell you the manual for $30 on how we grew our church. And you take this manual and you apply it and you'll grow your church too. I'm just waiting for someone to go, what happened? And a church go, I don't know. We preached the gospel and lived for the Lord and this happened. I mean, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great if, if First Baptist Church Washington started growing and we're bursting at the seams and we're like, oh man, we gotta we gotta do we gotta build a new sanctuary or something because there's so we don't even know what to do. We're running three services. And 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 the Illinois Baptist State Association calls me up and says, What is going on? And I go, I don't know. <laughs> Just preaching the word and people, I don't know. Amen. I don't I don't have anything I can tell you. That's what we got to do. Now, let me be clear. It's possible to do everything you're supposed to be doing and not even see the results in your lifetime. Because eternity will reveal what God has done with our obedience. There are many, a missionary, that labored for their entire life and never saw fruit. Ever. They didn't see it with their own eyes. But you know what? They were obedient. 
And God has blessed their labor in eternity. Don't lose sight, church. We have to keep this perspective because it's so easy to get discouraged on this earth and try to take matters into our own hands. It's so easy for me as a pastor to get discouraged. And, well, why aren't we growing? I, I've looked at the numbers for the last 12 years, and you know what? We've stayed relatively the same in attendance. Over, over a 12-year time, we've, we've not grown or, or really gone down. We've just stayed the same. And for some people, that's, that's success. And it's easy for me to look at that and get discouraged and try to take matters into my own hands and say, well, i gotta, I got to fix this. Instead of saying, God, we need your blessing. We need to just live the way we're supposed to live and trust that in your time you will do what you have said you will do. And so we see, we see this idea, the priority of God's blessing. Is that a priority? But I also want to see this, the promise of presence in our problems. The promise of presence in our problems. You see, there's times that we think, well, if we're blessed, that means that we're not going to have problems in our life. But you don't have to be a believer very long to realize that's just not true. However, what we do know is that God promises to give his presence in the midst of our problems. And he promises us eternity with him. You see, these Jews, they're still under Persian control. They, they were surrounded by hostile nations, and they're, they're just a small remnant in the land, and none of them would live long enough to see God's glory that is spoken of to come and rest on this temple. And they were building this temple, and, and, and he's promised a more magnificent splendor than it had an, on, on, than, than Solomon's temple. And John Calvin says, It often happens that those who sincerely and from the heart serve God are deprived of earthly blessings because God intends to elevate their minds to the hope of eternal reward. Wow, that's powerful. That, that we're deprived of earthly blessing because God intends to elevate our mind on the hope of eternal reward. And that's what Calvin is saying is the greatest blessing are not the temporary blessing that we gain on this earth that's going to soon vanish away, but the lasting blessing of joy and satisfaction that God's obedient servants will know through all eternity in heaven. Does God bless his obedient servants on this earth with material possessions? Yeah, and he does so often. But his greatest blessings are reserved for us in heaven where we will be with him for all eternity. And what this means for us is that first of all, we must understand that we have his presence in the midst of our problems. And secondly, even amid our problems, our focus must be on an eternal blessing or we will be discouraged. Like we sang this morning in the storm you are lord of all so here's a question how is it that god's blessing comes into our lives and into our work for the lord we said we have to put god's house first is that is that all is that we just got to put god's house first and Suddenly, we have all this blessing. Well, let's move on and see this. Pure and holy lives bring about God's blessing. Pure and holy lives bring about God's blessing. Remember, we said that we are starting at verse 19, working our way backwards. So now we notice that there are two questions that the Lord asked of the priest. First one is that if a man carried some holy meat this would have been meat that's offered in a sacrifice he carries that in the fold of his garment and touches bread or other food with that garment does that food become holy 
and the priests give the correct answer. They say no. Holiness is not transferable. So in other words, this holy thing by touching that doesn't make it holy. There was a second question. It was if one who is unclean through contact with a dead body touches any of these things, will that become unclean? Again, the priests give the correct answer. And they say, yes. If you're unclean and you touch that thing, that thing becomes unclean. And there are three lessons I want to draw out of these questions. First, the problem. The problem. Holiness is not transferable, but corruption is. Holiness is not transferable, but corruption is. Have you ever been sick with an infectious disease of some kind or, or something that you, know, that you can infect other people? What do you do? You typically try to stay home. You try to stay away from people so you don't spread your sickness. Now, if I'm healthy and you have the flu and you call me up and say, Pastor, I have the flu. I'm not feeling too well. Then if I come over to your house and I cough in your face, you're not going to feel better. It's not going to make you, you're not going to go, oh, boy, I feel better. Thanks for coming over and coughing on me. I feel, I feel so much better. But if you cough in my face, I may get sick. In fact, the likelihood is I will get sick. Health is not infectious, but disease is. It seems far easier to get sick, that is, than it is to stay healthy. Think about school and how often sickness spreads as kids spread their germs and then they bring their germs home. And so when illness is going around, it takes deliberate effort to keep from getting sick. Why do you think someone, like I got the flu and then like, seems like everybody you know gets the flu. Sin is just like that. You don't have some sort of holiness shield that you get from hanging around holy people. But you certainly can pick up the virus of sin by hanging around sinful people. And for some reason, we think the opposite. We have this idea that if we hang around church or we hang around the God crowd, then their holiness is going to rub off on me. And we seem to think that hanging around godless people is going to have absolutely no effect on us. And we're wrong on both accounts. Now, the answer is not to check out from society and check into a monastery to avoid the world. However, hear me out because I believe two things are true. First, holiness is not transferable. You won't catch godliness by being around godly people. You must personally get right with God by repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And only then can you walk in personal holiness. That's the only way to walk in personal holiness. You're not going to get like, oh, I hang out with a pastor. He and I are buddies, and so I'm holy. That doesn't work that way. Hanging out with godly people may help you walk with God, but you're not going to become holy by hanging around them as if it is transferable and it's going to somehow rub off on you. There's only one way to become holy, and that's through Jesus Christ. But secondly, when you think about your contact with the world, whether it's people or ideas, you have to see it as dangerous. What I mean by that is this. You see it for what it is. That you could be infected by it. And therefore, you use caution and you keep your objectives in front of you. As Christians, we are not in the world to romp around with sinners, but instead we are to be snatching sinners from the fryer through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh, Jude 23. Could it be that part of our problem is we no longer maintain a godly hatred for sin. 
And I'm not talking about preference, church. I mean a godly hatred for sin. In other words, what I am saying is that our contact with those that are contaminated by sin is to lead them to Jesus Christ. But we have to be careful that their contamination is not transferred to us because corruption is transferable. The people, secondly, the people. God blesses holy people, not holy causes. So the problem, holiness is not transferable, but corruption is. The people, God blesses holy people, not holy causes. And that's difficult for us to wrap our minds around. Especially in today's society where there seems to be some sort of cause for everything that we could possibly imagine. You know, save the planet, save the whales, and save this, and save that, and blah, 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 and save everything. We have all these causes. And we have to understand, it doesn't matter how great the cause is, unless the people that are involved in the cause are holy. So think about the temple. It was God's great cause. It, it was a great cause. It's where God would reveal his presence. It's where God would show his glory to his people. It's where sacrifice for sin would take place. All of the feasts and the celebration took place at the temple. The people were offering their sacrifices and going through the rituals, but their hearts were not right before God. Their disobedient hearts were, were, were wrong and sinful. And they're defiling the very sacrifices that they offered, just like those who touched a dead body contaminated others when they touched them. It's a vivid picture of living in sin all week long and then coming to the temple to worship. It's like dragging a dead corpse into the middle of the temple. And it defiles everything. If they had any thoughts that God would bless them just because they were involved in doing the right thing or because they had the right cause. And this, the cause of rebuilding the temple, then they were sadly mistaken. In other words, if they thought the cause of rebuilding the temple was going to bring blessing, they're mistaken. Because we don't fool God. By doing his work while hiding sin in our heart. Now, think about this with me. In our day and age, the church is the greatest cause in the world. What did Jesus say? He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. Christ loved the church. He gave himself for the church. Ephesians 5, 25. The church, the people, not the building, is God's temple where he dwells and makes himself known on earth today. Ephesians 2, 21 through 22. But listen to Haggai's word and heed the warning because we can be involved in the church as much as we want. We can give all kinds of money to the church. We can even be on staff at the church but if our heart is not clean before God then you're defiling everything that you touch one does not have to look far to see professing christians building multi-million dollar ministries and they're on tv and in national news they have thousands flocking to hear them speak or deliver what they call a prophetic word they sell millions of copies of their books on how you can receive god's blessing in your life but i'm here to tell you as sure as i'm standing here this morning if they do not have a broken and contrite heart if they are not striving for holiness if they are not hating sin in their life then they are nothing more than a slick showman who's in the business of doing church and there's a lot of church business going on. And sure, it may look like things are great and that God is blessing them because let's be honest, the church business can certainly seem like God's blessing, but I'm here to tell you, don't be fooled by the appearance of earthly things because they do not have God's true blessing and though they may be gaining the world, they're losing their soul. You see, it's about God's blessing. Not the blessing of man, but God's blessing. 
So we see the problem. We see the people. We see the pleasing. God is pleased with inward holiness, not just outward conformity. So often we look around, we try to see who's obeying the Lord. Right? We try to see who's displaying outward conformity to the things of God. We even get caught up in looking at ourselves saying, Lord, look, look at what I'm doing for you. But God looks at our heart. Do we do what we're doing from a heart that's made clean through faith in Jesus Christ? Do we really hate sin and abstain from evil when no one is even looking except God? It's not enough for us just to build the temple. We must build his temple from hearts that please him. Who knows our every thought. Often motives are not that important to other people. But they're certainly important to God. Our private thoughts actually matter to God. So we should ask ourselves, am I really seeking him each and every day? Or is my Christianity just a mask to cover up the corruption of my heart? Do I really try to bring every single thought into captive obedience to the will of Jesus Christ? The second Corinthians chapter 10 verse 5 tells us. Are you willing to figuratively pluck out your eye or cut off your hand if need be because you hate sin so much that you want to be holy before God Matthew 5:27 Church we have to be so careful that we're not just practicing our righteousness in the eyes of men Because God sees right through us. And he considers the motive of your heart. Robert Murray McShane said, According to your holiness, so shall be your success. A holy man is an awesome weapon in the hands of God. I want to close this morning by asking some self-evaluation questions that I feel are important for us to answer. Here's the thing. God repeats the same phrase three times in Haggai. It's this word consider. It means to set your heart on something or weigh it in your mind. And what God is asking for us to consider is, are we truly seeking God's kingdom? You see, when we're genuinely seeking God's kingdom from a pure heart, then this providential blessing overcomes our defilement. And we need to stop often and take inventory of our lives. We need to ask ourselves some serious heart level questions instead of just going through the motions of going to church. So I want to give you some questions to ask yourself this morning. And I want you to be honest with yourself and with God. And if need be, honest with someone else. As you ask yourselves these questions, maybe you need to go to someone else and, and say, hey, I got this problem. So let me ask you these questions. And have you asked them for yourself? Maybe you write down your answer or you just write down the question and then you ask them later. Question one, do I have a frequent and regular time alone with God in his word and prayer? Do I have a frequent and regular time alone 
with God in his word and prayer. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Do you do it? Or do you just kind of, well, I got to study for the Sunday school lesson. Let me quick read this. Question number two. When sin is revealed in my life, do I immediately confess it as known sin and turn from it genuinely in genuine repentance without blame or excuse? In other words, do I hate sin? 1 John 1, 9. So, sin is revealed in your life. Do you confess it? Or do you just blame it on something else or give an excuse to why you're doing it? Next question. Do I have the protection of accountability in my life to not make any provision for the sin that so easily entangles me? You say, well, what are you talking about? I'm asking you, is there somebody that holds you accountable for the sin that likes to seek you out and find you and attempt to destroy you? You see, we have all kinds of pastors in the midst of moral failure because they have no accountability. There's no one speaking any truth into their life to say, brother, you got a problem. You can't do this. This is not right. This even this this doesn't look good. This this is wrong. This is sinful. And because they've never had accountability, they go out and live their life of sin and they get away with it until finally it gets caught. And so I ask you, who is holding you accountable, protecting you from sin? Some people like to say, well, accountability is not in the Bible. Romans 3, 14, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, James 5, 16. Who's holding you accountable? Next question. Do I memorize and meditate on the scriptures that will keep me from temptation and sin? Do I memorize and meditate on the scripture that will keep me from temptation and sin, Psalm 119, 911. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Memorize God's word. Hide it in your heart so that you will not sin against the Lord. Next question. Am I completely truthful and transparent in my closest relationships? Or do I put on a mask of hypocrisy through deception, so people do not honestly know the secret sins in my life. Ephesians 4.25 Are you truthful and you're transparent in your closest relationships? Do people know the real you? Are you willing to say, I'm struggling? Or do you just hide in a mask of hypocrisy? Next question. Do I have an intense and vital love for Jesus because I often think about what he has done for me on the cross? Galatians 2.20, Revelation 2.4. Do you have an intense and vital love for Jesus? Next question. Do I truly want God's blessing on my life, on my family's life, and on the ministry that he has entrusted to me? Do you really want it? God's blessing? Not man's blessing, God's blessing? And are you going to live the holy life are you going to be obedient to what he's commanded you to do? Here's something to pray every single day. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous or wicked way in me 
and lead me into the way everlasting. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. God, search me. It's a dangerous prayer, folks. Search me. Know my heart. Try me and know my very thoughts. See if there's any wicked, grievous way in me and lead me into your way everlasting. Oh, church, that we would know the blessing of the Lord in such a way that our human mind cannot even explain it. And that someone would say, what is going on? And we say, I don't know. It's all God. I can't explain it. Oh, that we would know that blessing. Perhaps the Lord has spoken to you this morning through his word. I want to encourage you if that's the case. Then that you would respond. And whether it's I need to place my trust in Christ for the first time because I've never done that. I'm going to be standing down front. Come and say, Pastor, I need to trust in Jesus. Or maybe this morning you, you would say, I don't have anybody hold me accountable. I'm, I'm treading on dangerous ground or I'm not living a holy life because I don't search for the Lord. I don't seek for the Lord to search me and, and I'm not doing any of that stuff that you talk about. I'm not praying. I'm not memorizing scripture. I'm not diving deep into my word. I'm not transparent with people. I kind of live my life in seclusion. And you think the Lord's going to bless you? doesn't work that way. So maybe if the Lord's spoken to you this morning, I'm going to give you the chance to respond. I'll be down there. Whether it's you need someone to pray with you, you can pray on your own. You can come up here and pray. You can pray in your pew. If you make a decision, I would encourage you to let me know about it. I just want to challenge you, if the Lord's spoken to you, that you'd respond this morning as we sing this song in just a minute. Let's close a prayer.